going through this gospel and seeing Christ afresh in so many wonderful ways as he encounters one person after another after another. The reason we do, and we've said this before, but just as a reminder, the reason we do both topical as well as verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Bible, the value of an expositional study is that we should be learning better how to read our Bibles because we read it as the Holy Spirit inspired it, line after line after line. In its context, something comes before it, something comes after it. And so rather than systematically drawing from all different places in a topical study, which has its value, we're going line after line, looking at the story as it unfolds, as the Holy Spirit inspired it. So trust that we're feeling the benefit of that and bringing that home and learning more and more how to read our Bibles effectively. Well, before we get started into the topic and the subject of John 9, we're going to read this entire chapter. So I'm going to move through it at a pretty quick clip, and then we'll stop and slow down and explain some things as we go through. Beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. What do you want to hear it again for? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) This has got to be one of the most quick-witted people in all the Gospels. This guy's great. And, And they reviled him saying, you are his disciples. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. 
And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us the kind of humility that recognizes our need to see you. Awaken our hearts to see you through faith, to be transformed, to be awakened, to become worshipers. We need you, Lord. Open our eyes again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if Keith Collins has the gift of sarcasm, and I'll presume to say for those closest to him, gift isn't always the word that comes to mind when we experience the gift of sarcasm. But if we grant that he has the gift of being sarcastic, I have the gift of being oblivious. Yeah. I have what I would call an awareness problem. My wife at times would call it selfishness. I would call it an awareness problem. Where we would disagree would be on the ratio between the selfishness and the lack of awareness. Because she's a gracious woman, she will admit that there is some physical, mental, maybe even chemical weakness in the midst of my obliviousness. But this is what we're seeing here in this passage as well. I could give an example. My wife, as many of you know, uh, has experienced migraines for several years. And uh, it's a horrific thing. Those of you who have seen people have migraines or have migraines yourselves, they're, they're terrible. And she's had them for many years. And especially in these past few years, they've amped up and gotten more regular and frequent and more intense and all of that. And so she's been monitoring very carefully the things she eats, smells, any possible triggers, paint fumes. She's discovering all kinds of stuff that triggers migraines for her and trying to make sure to weed out those things so that they don't trigger migraines and cause that kind of suffering. One of the things that she most recently painfully discovered is a trigger for migraines is her most beloved chocolate. Yeah. Uh, and she, my wife doesn't rave about food. I don't understand her relationship to food. She leaves food on the plate. She leaves food on a fork. I don't understand that. Uh, but she raves about chocolate and she discovered that chocolate is something she's going to have to give up or else it's going to continue triggering these migraines. And she continues to live with two people that are wild about chocolate, our four-year-old Elizabeth and me. And I can be perfectly oblivious to this when we go out to a restaurant and we're looking at the menu. We went to Randy and Mandy's rehearsal, wedding rehearsal dinner together. And we're just up the street here on Veterans at this beautiful restaurant. And the dessert menu comes around. And we're reading the dessert menu. My wife, again, she can read a dessert menu with more than one thing on her mind. She's reading a menu and she's got all kind of tracks rolling at the same time. She's thinking, never bring the kids here. There's nothing they like on this menu. She's thinking, uh, just, uh, oh, I need angel hair pasta. Add that to the grocery list. All that is going on in her mind as she's just reading a menu. I'm right next to her reading the menu and I got one thing going on. <laughs> Avoid what tastes bad. And order what tastes good. It's a, it's a beautiful, simple life. The things of earth have grown strangely dim in that moment as I'm reading my menu. And so around comes the waiter to present the various dessert options. And he goes through a whole list of cheesecake items, which I abominate. And then he, he talks about this double chocolate waffle with two scoops of chocolate ice cream bathed in chocolate syrup. And as soon as he's done, I'm saying, I'm going with that chocolate monstrosity. That's me all the way. And, and Mandy burst out laughing because Mandy is a friend of Paul. She knows about the migraines. She's a co-sufferer of migraines as well. So she's deeply empathetic in that category. And I didn't know why Mandy laughed until the joke started firing in my direction. And uh, she can drop punchy one-liners all night long at will and did for quite a while. And honestly, I felt terrible about ordering that chocolate 
after I realized, oh, yeah, she can't eat this. She loves this. And this just monstrous plate of chocolate comes out. And the other people at the table hadn't heard any of Mandy's statements about Paula and chocolate and migraines. And so they're ooing and eyeing about the chocolate. And I'm just feeling awful. It's totally oblivious. And, you know, food and menus can be and induce a sort of functional temporary blindness for me. The anticipation of the moment of enjoyment and then the enjoyment itself just blocks everything else out. Jesus dealt with lots of people. I took a bite of the chocolate. I did. Uh, is the altar of repentance open? Eric, come forward. I felt like I needed to oblige the mom who bought all this fine food. So I took a couple of bites. Yes, they, if it helps, they didn't taste good. All right. It it went down fine, but it just didn't feel good. So no more questions from the audience, please. (laughs) Jesus dealt with lots of people just like me. People who should know better. People who in the moment forget things that are absolutely incredibly important. People who have 20-20 vision but are oblivious to the flashing realities that are all around them. That's what's going on here in this passage. We've got oblivious people who can't see Christ and he's seeking to show himself in all of his glory. This passage is about seeing with new eyes. This passage has a sweet invitation for those who have not yet truly seen Christ. And in a group this size, there would be people here who maybe you come, you're curious, you want to hear more. Maybe you've been in a relationship with some people here and you like the people and you come and you listen, but you've never truly tasted and seen Jesus Christ. Because to see Christ truly with the eyes of the heart is to fall before him in worship. It is, it is to see our need for him, our deep need for him, to feel that. It's to see his death as necessary to cover my sins. It's to see his death and his resurrection as deeply relevant for my life. Not some theological abstraction that's anchored in a few texts of scripture, but something poignant, something that affects me. That's to see Christ truly. And there's an invitation here from Christ to see him. And at the same time, there is a rousing word of provocation to those who have become Christians, but get our sight and how easy this can be to become Christianity centered rather than Christ centered. To focus more on the Christian life than on Christ himself. This text invites us back into a perspective that is utterly Christ-centered. The blindness to Christ on account of religious observance is a major thread, as you could probably see it in our initial reading of John 9. There's a tone of hostility, isn't there, in John 9. These guys have their back up from the very first moment this blind, this healed blind man walks in. You can tell there is an opposition flavor about this from the very first question they ask. And it's sort of one of those things. If you've ever been either around the office and maybe you're having a big meeting, business meeting, or maybe even at a family reunion where two people are sitting down and they start talking and it becomes a heated discussion. And even though you're thinking, even though I've never seen these two talk about those issues, it is very clear that this issue has been looming for a while. This is, this is crockpot conflict. This has been brewing for a while. This didn't just happen today. This has been brewing for a while. And the same thing is true in John 9. It's not like the Pharisees hate seeing people, locals, healed. No, there are bigger issues to, that coming to bear on this. There is a conflict that's been stirring. Because there's a pattern, as we've read through John, hopefully we've noticed something of the pattern, that Jesus' relationship to sinners who know that they're sinners is much different than Jesus' relationship to sinners who don't know that they're sinners. 
Sinners are drawn to him for the right and wrong reasons, admittedly. In John chapter 6, he says, you guys are just coming because I fed you before and you want another meal. But they're drawn, by and large, sinners who know they're sinners are drawn to Christ. And religious self-reliant people don't like him. They avoid him. They're not a part of his, his fan club. And they don't understand what all the fuss is about. And they're trying to quiet that down. And so you see, when you back up into and get the remote context, the bigger picture of where this all started, there wasn't a problem with Jesus until he started ministering. When he was the precocious kid asking questions and talking theology with the professors and the Pharisees, they probably thought, wow, this kid's got promise. He's a prodigy. He, he has an eagerness for the law of God. This is great. This is the future of our movement. This might be the next Caiaphas. No problem. But let him start walking around. Let him break the Sabbath a couple of times. Let him make himself equal with God. Let him work miracles so that the people's ears are tuned toward what he's doing. And rumors are going all around that he might be the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And everything starts changing. And so he begins this ministry. And according to John's account, his first miracle is basically to replenish the wet bar at a wedding. To keep the festival going, right? And he moves from there in John's gospel and he goes to church. And what does he do at the church? He makes a whip, turns tables over, calls people names, robbers and thieves. And sparks begin flying from John 2 all the way forward through the text. There's conflict here. Notorious sinners like the Samaritan woman run through the streets at midday proclaiming Christ. And her unlikely Samaritan neighbors call him the Savior. While intrigued, religious scholars come to him under cloak of darkness to ask theology questions. Look, if it seems, when we come to John 9, if it seems like these Pharisees woke up on the wrong side of the bed, understand what's going on here. These rumors and this influence combined with Jesus' seeming defiance of the law of God is making for a, a toxic relationship between these men and Jesus. And they don't like it because, look, I've been teaching rabbinical school for 30 years. I know what the Messiah looks like. I've drawn pictures of the Messiah on whiteboards all over Palestine. I know who he is. And trust me, guys, this is not him. Messiah, when he comes, he's going to blend in with temple furniture. He's going to rub shoulders with the spiritual elites. He's going to oust the Romans. He's going to usher in a revolution. He's going to clean up the streets. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to invent the scud missile. He's going to make the nations wish they never messed with Abraham's children. That's what Messiah is going to do. And this guy isn't sizing up to that. That's the context. Hopefully that helps us feel some of the tensions in this text. But the passage starts, let's go back to John 9, verse 1, with curious disciples giving Jesus a multiple choice question. God doesn't always do well with multiple choice questions because built into that multiple choice question is the fact that we know the answer. We know the answer is one of these two, God. So which one of these two answers that we've given to you is it going to be? They walk... They're walking along the way. Jesus perhaps stops and just looks at this blind man. And disciples take it as an opportunity to ask him and say, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? What went wrong? Now let's back up and do just a moment of thinking systematically about the entire message of the Bible. Getting out of John chapter 9, which talks about one sense in which there's a relationship uh, between sin and suffering. But think about these questions. You don't have to answer out loud. Is it biblically accurate to say all suffering is a result of the fall? Think about it. The answer is yes. There would be no suffering if it weren't for the fall. There was no suffering in Eden prior to the fall. All right? Secondly, does scripture teach the general principle of sowing and reaping that actions have consequences? There again, the answer would be yes. Yet, does scripture teach that each experience of suffering in my life is owing to a specific sin that I or my parents have committed? And the answer there would be no. 
Now, it's tempting to stay here for a while and talk about this. But as you notice, Jesus doesn't. He just moves right on. So I don't want to take a whole lot of time. But let me just just throw a little warning here that as Christians, particularly Christians who have been Christians for a while, it can be very tempting to begin to use the gift of discernment to draw connections when we see people's lives, especially if we know them well, to draw connections between the trials we see them going through back to the sins that we know they've committed in the past. And even maybe to ask assumptive questions about, have you really considered about this issue that was in your life a few years ago? Can I just raise a flag about the danger of that? The danger of speculation, of trying to connect the dots and and automatically assuming this is a sowing and reaping thing. See, Jesus answers their question by saying, guys, you've misread the situation. This is not a sowing and reaping thing. I have different purposes in mind. I'm going to do something different in this situation. Really, the whole book of Job comes out of that very question where Job's friends, they look at his life and they say, bro, we thought you were a pretty good guy, but given the unique depth of your suffering, something must have been way wrong in your secret life. Right? Not much comfort in that, right? Can we trust that when there is a relationship between our sufferings and our sins, God in his kindness will make it known to us? If we need to know the relationship between our sufferings in a particular instance and our sins, God will be kind enough to make it known to us. And you know, by and large, the usual way of God is, he's not going to make it known to the person next to you. In his kindness, he's going to lovingly discipline me. He's going to show that to me so that I can repent and change and receive his grace. But let's not be speculative. Let's discern our discernment and avoid speculation. Because a lot of quote-unquote discernment is really veiled, arrogant speculation that puffs me up and puts other people down. That's not what we want to do. Jesus says, this is, not, this is not a sowing and reaping thing. I have other purposes in this man's trial. And then he goes on to say, I'm the light of the world. And what happens next in the, in the text? He touches the blind man's eyes. He sends him to the pool of Siloam. The man washes and he's healed. And from then and there, it moves into the post-healing interrogation. You would expect a celebration, wouldn't you? And surely there would have been a, an instinct of compassion. Imagine if we were, we were a people who just walked up the same streets. We lived in a town like this and we walked up the same streets every day. And we saw the same people begging there every day. Would there not have been an instinct of compassion? That just said, oh, 30 years, 30 years he's still begging. And then to see this guy running through the streets, I'm healed I'm healed, I'm healed. And we sit him down and say, get your parents. Let's prove it. Let's see if you're really the guy. You see the conflict? See the nastiness that's in the heart? You see what religion can do? It can get us so strapped into regulations and systems and observances that we lose sight that God has done an amazing work. And this guy can't even put it into words yet. He just says, look, I don't know all the answers to your theology questions. I can see. I can see. Can we just celebrate that? And yet, these men, they go into this deep interrogation mode, making him prove it. The neighbors ask questions. They can't believe what's happened. The leaders put the miracle on trial. You weren't really blind. Go get your parents. Now, note the progression that this man now sees with his natural eyes he sees. But note the progression of his spiritual sight. His natural sight, I'll just show my hand from the beginning here and we'll talk about it later. This beginning three verses is a parable of the rest. The natural sight that's given to this man is a parable of the deeper issue of spiritual sight that Jesus Christ gives, enabling us to see him as the savior of the world. That's the big idea in John 9. Okay, so that is what emerges out of this. And what you see is the man's healed from his physical blindness, and then he's going and enabled by God to see with greater and greater clarity who Jesus is. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, Jesus is 
The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, that's who he is. All right, he, Jesus is just some guy named Jesus who's got magical spit. That's what he is. In, in, in verse 11, that's all he knows. That's all he knows. This guy named Jesus came, spit in the mud, put the mud in my eyes. That's all I can tell you. That's not all he can tell us as the text moves forward. Verse 17, they say, who is he? He doesn't just say some guy. He says he's a prophet. Now, there's, that language meant something in this time. To say he was a prophet was to give him a higher rank and status than just some guy. He's a prophet. Later on in verse 31, he's going to say, this is much like the other prophets. This guy's got a direct line with God. He speaks to God and God listens to him. That's what, that's what this prophetic understanding was. But it gets even more clear. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So now this man is from God. And now this man has God's power to work miracles. He's seeing more and more clearly the status of Jesus Christ. Verse 35, he's the son of man. That's a title to deity. In verse 38, he puts his faith in Jesus Christ and worships him as God. As that progression is going forward, and he's going from sight to greater sight to greater sight, the Pharisees are going from darkness to deeper darkness to deeper darkness. And they begin by questioning the veracity of the miracle itself, and then start moving into insulting the one who did it. He's a sinner. He's not from God. The trajectories are completely in the opposite direction. The people who should know better are unaware. And the man who was born blind is going from sight a greater sight now fast forward through the trial and they're bullying him around and he's got these quick witted remarks he was blind but he was never dumb this guy is a sharp guy and he's interacting with these leaders and handling handling them quite deftly and he begins to start formulating his christology he's starting to put together a theology of jesus and he's doing exactly what john's gospels intended to do Signs aren't signs in and of themselves. Signs aren't, aren't given just because Jesus was tired of looking at this man who was blind and he wanted to give the guy a chance, give him some breaks, let him see. No, signs are intended to point beyond themselves to the identity of Jesus. And so this guy starts doing that. Intuitively, he starts reading back from the miracles to the identity of Jesus. And he says, wait, if he did this, Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's from God. Maybe he is God. Maybe he's the son of man. And as soon as he begins to formulate that kind of theology, they browbeat him and kick him out of the synagogue. And what happens then? A fourth century preacher and theologian named John Chrysostom said it this way. The Jews cast him out of the synagogue and the Lord of the synagogue found him. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in the son of man? Now, what's about to happen in verse 36 is another healing. For another blindness. This, this time it's not going to be the natural eye that sees. It's going to be the spiritual eye that sees Christ. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And look at the question. Look at the question and think imagery of the question. He answered, who is he? Feeling, groping around. Where is the Son of Man? Is he around here? Show me. This harkens back to John 4, doesn't it? The woman at the well. Who is he? Where is he that I might believe in him? And what does Jesus say? You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Keep reading. Jesus said, here's the bottom line. This is the heart of the text. This is why Jesus, ultimately why Jesus stopped to heal this blind man. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. 
But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Charles Spurgeon writes, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. See, that's the point of the passage. Those who see, those who truly see, see because Jesus makes them see graciously. Those who say they see and reject the light of the world and rely on themselves live in darkness and will face him as judge. deeply ironic that religious performance even Christian religious performance can be the most spiritually blinding place of all insofar as we get our eyes off of Christ into the trappings of Christianity into what we're supposed to be doing and saying how we're supposed to be acting where we're supposed to be and not be and we're getting our eyes off of Christ who's granted us sight I underwent a a deep change in my life when I went to college. And I grew up in the church, in Christianity, was surrounded by Christians, surrounded by men in my family who were pastors. And so I knew the verbiage of Christian life. I knew what Christians were supposed to do and not do. And when I went to college, it was the first time that the Lord really gave me an appetite for his word. A real hunger to read. I couldn't read enough. And in the providence of God, I landed mainly in the book of Philippians, mainly in chapter 3, and in a particular set of verses. And it's sweet to see the relationship between this text and my own personal biography because Paul, in that passage, is setting up these two delineating ways of living. He says, I've done religious life i've i've lived my life under the law of yahweh i have wanted so strongly and zealously to follow in the traditions that were given to my old testament kinsmen and he pursued them vigorously he studied under gamaliel and he goes through all these things that he did and he says but i would count those things as garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing seeing Christ. And and then he he sees the sweetness of how Christ releases him from having to rigorously keep the law to earn acceptance with God. He says, I see the righteousness of God in Christ, not by doing the works of the law, but by faith in him that I may know him. And Gordon Fee, the scholar of the book of Philippians, and he, he says that it's probably the most deeply autobiographical moment in Paul's writings where Paul talks about the essential core value of his life. I want to know Christ intimately. I want to see him and go on seeing him because I've seen him and I was arrested by him, it says later in the chapter. But I want to go on being captured by the thing that captured me in the first day. Religion, it's so subtle, the way that religion can strip us of the joy that we have, our first love having come to see Christ. And Timothy Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, says it's really important for Christians in our witness and our testimony and the way that we think about the Christian life, don't just differentiate between two ways. We often talk about there's the, you either follow Christ or you follow the world. Or we'll phrase it differently. You either follow Christ or you follow your own self, your own desires. He says it's more helpful to think of it in three ways. You either follow Christ, you follow the world, Or you follow religion. And it's important to distinguish those three because he says, when we go and we tell people who don't know and haven't experienced a taste of Jesus Christ, and we tell them about the Christian life, they might go ahead and assume we're just asking them to sign up for a religious program. Get on board, attend church, join a covenant group, start praying. You haven't started reading your Bible? What's wrong? Stop sinning. And that's not anything distinctly Christian. Do you know there are people all over the world who think they should give to God more? Who think they should pray to God more this year? They've been making New Year's resolutions just these past couple of weeks. 
People who think they should spend more time at the church. The only thing that is absolutely distinctly Christian about Christianity is it's Christ. Is it's free gospel. And there's a sense in which we, the way that we live and talk is, is that the gospel's never freer than the first day that you receive it. And there's no fine print. And then people can come into our lives and start saying, hey, you know, when you signed on for this, you have to do this. And you have to do this as well. And oh, you, you weren't there. And that's a problem. You see, and then we start taxing and the load of legalism begins to weigh us down and we lose sight of the joy that now we see. We see because he made us see. When I lose sight of Christ, I start focusing on my own performance. Even if I qualify it and say my God-enabled performance. But if I'm focusing on my even God-enabled performance and I'm looking away from Christ, I'm headed down one of two possible roads. One is to begin looking at my works and comparing myself to other people positively. So I have to first I have to select a, a good group of people against which I'm contrasted in my goodness. So I have to pick people who are really mediocre, sub-mediocre, and I start to feel really good about myself because my works are quite, quite better than theirs. <laughs> I mean, it's not me. You know, it's grace is working in me. This, that's what makes me what I am. So we'll add those qualifiers, and yet our focus is very much on what we're doing, our performance, and our head starts to get big, we get arrogant, we get self-righteous, we start looking down on other people and judging them for their failure to step up and appropriate the promises. And that's, it just becomes this, again, it's kind of that pharisaical nastiness that you can't put your finger on it, and if a question were asked, you'd answer with the right theology and qualify it correctly, but that, that spirit, that meanness... That looking for labels. Or on the other hand, I'll focus on my poor performance. I'll lose hope. And I'll try to bootstrap my way every day of my life back into good graces with God. And both of those are utterly destructive to the joy that we have in simply seeing Christ. Kent Hughes says it's possible to come to know Christ. But to effectively seal ourselves from the light. As with the Pharisees, our pride in visible change can dull us to the aggressive darkness of our hearts. The miracle in this moment is, is that Jesus Christ opens the eyes of sinners so that they sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, like this parable, is not about physical blindness. It's, it's about the fact that in our fallenness, we can't see Christ as he is. We don't see him. There he is. He's shining. The, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians says, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. There he is shining and we don't see it. We don't have the capacity to see him for who he is. And so we look at him and we think, he's no better. Honestly, he's no better than sex, vacations, money, other gods, other forms of spirituality. We don't see any distinction. We don't understand what all the fuss is about. Glad he came. Great teacher. But talk about an example of love. Wow. There are probably maybe three to five people in all of history who love like that man loved. Wow. Sorry about the whole execution thing. But it, it just, it hardens me to know how many people's lives have been touched by seeing that historical man, Jesus. You see what an insult that is to the only son of God? And he's shining in all of his glory and we don't see it until he comes to us like the man born blind. He comes to us and he says, in your heart, in my heart, he says, Gus Mackey, I'm the light of the world. Nick Francis, I am the light of the world. See me. 
see my grace and my kindness in raising you up, giving you sight. And then everything starts to come into view, doesn't it? Things start to become crisp and clear, increasingly, progressively. We come back to the same meeting that we were in seven days ago, and we say, no wonder they worship like that. No wonder they give like that. No wonder they serve like that. No wonder they lay down their lives and go to all those different meetings. It's not because they feel they have to keep themselves in good graces with God. They've seen something amazing. They've been delivered. First Corinthians two fourteen through 16 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me just for a moment. Second Corinthians 3 verse 12. Listen to this in light of John 9. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over our hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed You hear the pool of Siloam? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? You've seen him in the face of Jesus Christ. Only through Christ is the veil taken away. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you see him? Have you truly seen Christ in a way that is utterly life transforming? If you have, do you meditate on that frequently? At what a miracle that is? What a miracle it is? Truth of the matter is, we're all born blind. None of us can see. We're groping in the darkness, not knowing who God is, what his plan is for our lives, not knowing the purpose for which we are here. And Jesus Christ came to us and shone his light into our hearts and everything changed. What effect will seeing and continuing to focus on Christ have in our lives? Well, if you want to see the effect that it has, pick a sinner in the gospels and follow him. Follow them through the pages of the Gospels and see what kinds of things they do as they, as they run through the streets in the middle of the day saying, come see a man. As they break expensive alabaster jars at his feet and worship. Experiencing the profound work of forgiveness that he's offered. Watch them. Watch what happens. As they go and they sell everything so they can buy that field, which represents the treasure that Christ is. And they sell it with joy, not as a chore or to get something. They sell it because I've seen Christ and he's worth having. 
Look at the churches in the New Testament that are tempted to drift into a religious mindset. And look at what, under divine inspiration, the, the apostles used to stabilize those churches. Look at the book of Colossians as a perfect example. That was a church that was tempted strongly to drift into asceticism, stoicism, saying don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, religious observance, you can't do that, can't do this. How did they get stabilized? Colossians is a massive work on the person and work of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him it pleased God that the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in bodily form. And you see all these explosive portraits of Jesus Christ that stabilize and tether down that church and keep them from being legalists, from getting lost in the the trap and the maze of religious observance. Read Galatians. Find out how does Paul anchor a church that wants to look away from Christ to the works that they're doing. The Christian life begins when the eyes of our hearts are touched by the Savior. Not only that, the Christian life continues in health as we continue to look at Jesus Christ and to stare into his face, to keep our eyes fixed on him. So that as the old hymn said, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And his grace. So the Christian life begins with the sight of Christ. It continues with the sight of Christ. And what does it end with? What is the consummation of our redemption? The culminating pinnacle moment in all of redemptive history. What happens? They shall see his face. That's sheer grace. That, that, that releases us from the burden of feeling like we have to earn things from God. Nine times out of ten, when I'm over here and I'm leading worship, and I'm, I have to pull away from the microphone because I've been affected so deeply by something we're singing, most of the time, my personal experience, that's as we're singing things like the second verse of Before the Throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. We sing a song called Jesus Died for Me. It says, weighed down by sin's oppressive chain. Oh, how can I get free? No peace can all my efforts gain. No peace. Have you come to the end of your efforts? No peace can all my efforts gain, but Jesus died for me. That's, we're talking about the, the heart of the gospel. This will keep us from sounding like the Pharisees when people's lives are changed, asking them questions, making sure their theology is all right. And this will keep us rejoicing in God. I said this before, but you know, one of the effects... In the Gospels, if you follow this man in John 9, what does he do when he sees Christ? He worships. You know, our worship will rise and fall if it's anchored in subjective blessings. Blessings that come and go. If we are anchored in truths like this, our worship will never change. We don't have, quote-unquote, an off Sunday where, wow, yeah, just couldn't, couldn't kick the people into gear. We shouldn't have to do or even ask that question or even have that conversation. That phrase should not be a part of our vocabulary. What kicks us into gear is the fact that blessed is the man to whom the Lord has not imputed his sin. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand But here I stand boldly in your presence, having been washed spotless clean from all my sins. Look, that will amp up your worship on any given Sunday, no matter what's happening in your life. Let's pray.
Lord, forgive us for our moments of being oblivious to the reality that is flashing all around us as believers. We once were blind, but now we see. Or take away our hard hearts that have become so familiar with that truth that it doesn't sing anymore. It doesn't move us anymore. Lord, and perhaps that's because we've gotten our eyes off of that. We thought that was some kind of foundation thing. And the foundation's somewhere down there holding everything else up, but our eyes are on the structure. Cause us again. Or like those who were faithful in Hebrews 11 to look to you or to bank our lives on the promises you've made to us. Lord, boost our worship and boost it by going to the heart of what's wrong. It's not that we need to be coaxed into singing. It's not that we need to be reminded again that clapping is biblical. (laughs) Oh, Lord, this man probably was never told he was supposed to clap. People throughout the Bible were probably never told that raising your hands is okay. Lord, it's a natural response. They went walking and leaping and praising God. Nobody read them a verse that that was okay. They just saw you. They saw you. And they were affected by you. They saw grace that was amazing, that was staggering. That turned them away from their self-reliance in their bootstrap way of doing life. It turned them away from the futile and fleeting pleasures they had been pursuing and they saw the real thing. Show us again your glory, Christ. Show us. May we worship and live for you aright. And Lord, those who do not know you here this morning, touch their eyes. Send them to the pool of repentance and faith that they might come away healed and sighted. Thank you, Lord. Spirit.